Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Melissa Gregg. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you. I don't think I've seen you for very many years. (laughs) Let's not go into the number of years. (laughs) But you're looking well, and I can see out your window the lushness, the verdant life that is Portland, Oregon. Indeed. What I wanted to ask you today, or start with today, was what's worrying you, turning you on, dynamizing you, interesting you right now? Gosh, they may not be the same things. Um, Sure. That's a lot of words that I am happy to respond to this early in the morning. (laughs) Um, I just got back from Australia. I've been down under for the last few months visiting my family and doing some work for RMIT in Melbourne. The Royal Um, Melbourne Institute of Technology, yeah? Yes, yes. Acronym bingo will be us today on (laughs) this podcast because I'm I'm also recovering from uh, the past 10 years working at a large multinational technology and manufacturing company where if you don't know the acronyms, you don't keep your job. <laughs> when you say so, recovering, is there hmm. a group that one can join to assist in recovery? There's definitely an alumni network that is becoming more and more apparent um, the longer I'm out. So uh, that's that's nice to discover. Um, but I often, you know, since I have been working in tech, have called myself a recovering academic. So I think I'm just destined to be in various stages of mourning grief and um, rebuilding from the professional formations of my past. <laughs> uh, what What's occupying me mostly is the weather mm. because on the one hand it has been a battle to get out the door the last week in Portland. There's been a lot of cold weather and unseasonably so. Uh, but on a broader level, uh, I have been spending most of the past year doing a a program of anti-colonial gardening. Um, I have been working on removing a lot of invasives in my backyard here in Portland. Mm. I live in the hills where English and Boston ivy has taken over and is ruining a lot of the native habitat. Um, So when I first quit my job, a lot of my... uh, Energy went into um, doing some some planting and weeding that would um, bring back more birds and and wildlife that's native to the area. And I also spent a fair bit of money buying some land on Bruni Island in Tasmania where I grew up. Um, And so the other thing I'm doing when I'm in Australia is uh, the same process, uh, removing a lot of um, the impacts of colonial farming and um, land clearing in the place where I was also um, implicated in those practices as as the daughter of a farmer and uh, replanting a lot of native species to try and save some of the endangered birds and um, marsupials and critters in the more general term in Australia. So that's that's what's practically occupying me right now. <laughs> that's fascinating. What's it like moving from, I presume, this technology corporation to which you refer 
to spending a lot of time on your hands and knees, I guess, in the garden mm-hmm. and, you know, digging around and trying to identify the bad guys and the good guys, right? I in- think the only positive application of AI I'm very enthusiastic about right now is plant identification. So <laughs> I, have, I have a plant ID app that I have been using to learn a lot more about American species um, because, of course, growing up, a lot of what I saw was Australian. Um, but to your point, the thing I really wanted the most when I left uh, an office job or um, what what was the semblance of an office job because we weren't being given offices by the time I left. We weren't allowed in to the workplace anymore because of covid um, I just was so sick of staring at a screen and massaging PowerPoint slides for executives that I just felt like I needed to do something much more hands-on, literally, mm-hmm. and particularly given that the work I had been doing was working in the field of sustainability and um, environmental impacts. I just I just needed to do something much more grounded I'm using all these metaphors but they're actually relevant because I just I just felt like I was working in a context where I was every day being um pepped from the hard work of actually changing the lifestyles and the surroundings we're finding ourselves in in relation to to climate change your frankness is greatly appreciated as is your agreement to get back in front of a screen for the purposes of a conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much, Melissa. So I think this is an interesting story in that you're going back, back, back in a sense to your origins. You said you were the daughter of a farmer. Indeed. But going back, back, back to those origins in a way that is undoing a little the colonial heritage of some of that farming history. Is that fair to say? That's certainly one thing that I've concluded um, from a lot of the research and um, retraining, I guess, I've been doing in in the last few years as I've been getting more into the sustainability field. I've wanted to make sure that I'm coming to this topic from a place of humility because I'm not professionally um, invested in this in the same way that a lot of the um, colleagues in in the context I was working have been trained, you know, through different programs and certifications. Instead, for me, I've been quite influenced by um, a leadership course that I took online through the Harvard School of Health, which gave me a lot of techniques to place my life in the context of um, deep time, you know, climate time as it's experienced through our ancestors and uh, the inheritances, I suppose, that we get um, when you do that tracing work. So it, I was trapped here in Portland during COVID. I'm sure many other people had difficulties returning home or seeing loved ones. So a lot of what I did to um, supplement or um cope with that lockdown was um, looking at a lot of family history but also being quite conscious about the relationship between the kinds of economic fortunes that my family benefited from in the past and the fortunes that I was benefiting from working in tech. So I did a talk for RMIT 
a couple of years ago where I draw out this connection between the forms of extraction that were happening in colonial practices in Australia and then what we were clearly seeing with the AI gold rush that was just then beginning. You're not sounding like a great fan of artificial intelligence other than plant recognition device, which is no doubt going to be used in part by artificial intelligence and corporations in the interest of plant variety rights and how to get around them or how to secure them. Could you tell us a little bit about what looks to me, sounds to me like some scepticism on your part? Look, this is um, a topic I've decided to go quite bullish against (laughs) because I'm not seeing anybody else really doing it right now. I've got... um, I've obviously got this position with the ARC Centre for Excellence on Automated Decision-Making in Society. I'm on the the International Advisory Board for that um, fantastic centre and there's a lot of great work happening on the the social impacts of how AI is being implemented and and how social sciences and and media and communication and cultural studies folks can influence that agenda. Um, But having worked in tech for 10 years and you know, seeing the strategy or lack thereof going into AI investments at particular times, um, it does give you grounds for scepticism in the sense that you know that it's not just this latest um, 18 months that is when all of the action has begun. A lot of these technologies have been worked on for a very long time, Um, but the marketing of how those technologies will be applied and can be applied is now reaching a, a, a sort of fever pitch. And um, when you can see those hype cycles from the inside being manufactured or downplayed, depending on the capabilities of the company, um, that does give you grounds for concern. And, and the other thing, I suppose, now that I am out of um, a formal employment role in a company setting is I feel a lot more free to say things that are critical because there is a genuine consensus that forms when companies are working on products, whether they're competitive or not, um, to say that this is the future so that the resources follow, the uh, investors are convinced and um, the show carries on. So while there may be many excellent applications of AI, what I'm very concerned about is the lack of scrutiny in the development and the marketing of these products and also just the general scepticism I have of um, reactive um, scholarship which is not driving its own agenda of um, questioning the temporality that tech companies are dictating at the moment. Just quickly on, on acronyms you said ARC which I guess is Australian Research Council is yes, that right? that's right. Yeah. So I could have said COE, but I said Center of Excellence. So these are really rare grants, actually, from the ARC that allow for deep engagement and and generation forming amounts of funding for early career researchers, PhD students, and professors to build out a whole new paradigm. Um, and it's just brilliant that we have this in Australia, one of the only centres that's doing this kind of work from 
our disciplinary background. Um, so it's really terrific to be able to be affiliated with them even briefly. It sounds wonderful, yes. So getting on to your concerns, it seems to me that it's unlikely that the big technologists and the studios that are in cahoots for the first time in years over this topic are reading Fernand Brodel or Raymond Williams or Brian Winston. But if they did, they would know that the norm is for so-called innovative technologies to be available for decades, sometimes a century before they're adopted. And they get adopted when the right class fractions are in place to mm -hmm. align their interests with this development. And sometimes that can mean the military. Sometimes it can mean cultural industries. Sometimes it can mean business concerns. Sometimes it can mean public service surveillance, all kinds of things. But the story is there. So <clears throat> this does sound like it fits into that sort of history of technology and it's very fortunate that, I guess, in addition to your scholarly work, you have a certain cachet that comes from your latest recovery, as it were, <laughs> um, because you can speak from within the belly of the etc. in a way that mm -hmm. many academics might wish to, but very few can. Right. I think the thing that you've made me want to pause and just reiterate here is the significance of the moment we're in where so many CEOs of these very powerful companies are in the engineering profession. So they're training as engineers and now their power as corporate leaders has converged at a time that's incredibly uh, troubling <laughs> or you know, if we were to be optimistic, um, it's it's a great evolution in the way that uh, corporations and U.S. corporations in particular have um, led the world in particular directions. But um, some of my writing since I left um, has been looking at the ways in which the engineering mindset has infused the management practices of these tech companies in ways that really do constrict or restrict um, the imagination and the capability of the employees to very, very small, finite dashboard numbers. Um, the, the creativity, the imagination, the optimism and the rebuilding or um, I suppose reimagining of, of a different kind of business culture seems to have been uh, left completely out of any potential conversation and instead we're carrying on the common sense practices of business that were all developed during the fossil fuel era and we're now adding the magic of technology to enable that um, growth paradigm even further. So I, I think in terms of this um, heritage of, of concepts that we have to talk about class and also gender and race in the context of tech um, cultural studies really does have a role to play to just um, point these things out before this consensus um, and growth fantasy continues to spread even further. So there's a lot to unpick or to try to understand in what you just said, which seems very important to me. 
without my fully comprehending. It sounds as though per Taylorism and the role of engineering in the history of US management, so-called science, we're getting a replication of what happened in the industrial era from what you're telling us. And it also sounds as though, in addition to stifling all kinds of creativity, you're concerned that this is going to produce yet again a set of norms and hierarchies that replicate society structured through inequality. And you mentioned class and race. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there are some examples you can think of, and I don't want to break into any secret arrangements, as it were, or obligations you may have to former employers, but are there examples you can think of which might be invented by you now as instances or might be real where one can see this form of thinking overdetermining the capacity to be creative and the capacity to think through these issues of inequality? I think the concrete example is one I've already um, published on, so I'll just stick with it. It's, it's the way in which um, engineering milestones for climate objectives are now being managed, um, particularly in terms of tracking energy efficiency. So um, the legacy I trace in some of my previous work on productivity is, as you say, linking the ideas of Taylorism and the Gilbreths through to a form of software engineering practice that makes productivity the main outcome for professionals to take on as individual subjects. But in the context of a corporation, when engineers are in charge of all the strategy, including things like sustainability, um, what looks like success um, year on year is a percentage increase of efficiency. Um, And so what this has led to over many years is engineers being incentivized to make things more efficient in the way that um, technology operates, which creates this um, rebound effect for energy use, which I think other people on your program have probably talked about in the past. Um, but what doesn't change is um, the demand uh, or the role of the corporation's business model in encouraging further demand for energy. So that that's ultimately one of the challenges with AI right now is these incredibly powerful use cases are being normalised as the entry point for most people's experience of what AI can do without any conversation explicitly attached to that about the way that the ways we introduce technology now will mean other kinds of energy use will not be possible for others. And that is how climate injustice and and environmental injustice will continue because we need energy and renewable energy in a lot of places in the world right now, far far less of um, the needy are in Silicon Valley locations where these decisions are being made. Right. On this issue of sustainability, perhaps you could talk to us a bit more about that in terms of You've obviously made a big commitment to re-education, as it were, on this topic, which I think a lot of people have realised is necessary, even if not so many of them have gone about it as assiduously as of you. When did this occur to you as becoming a kind of cry from the heart, a sort of new life work 
in terms of your father, your work, your own commitment to rewilding spaces in both Oregon and Tasmania? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few moments that clustered together just before the pandemic for me. I was working on a big international project for Intel for um, a new laptop innovation uh, initiative that ended up being the foundation for a brand launch for the uh, Evo laptop brand. And my job leading the user experience research team at that time was to go and interview particularly young people um, about how they felt about their laptops. A very basic sort of UX kind of study, but um, I chose to go back to a place where I had done a visiting fellowship for a few years, which was um, in Sweden, in Lund and Malmö. And I interviewed quite a lot of young people there who were extremely concerned about climate change and were also working in a range of different startups or launching their own businesses as influencers. Um, and I remember this one amazing young woman we spoke to who, when I asked her, you know, um, what do you think about, you know, the laptops available, what will be your next purchase? She said, you know, I'm just going to feel really bad if I have to buy another laptop. And she was contemplating buying one secondhand because she just felt like technology companies were really letting her down by forcing her to upgrade unnecessarily. And I took this I took this as a, you know, it was a perfect fieldwork moment because you can take that straight to an executive and say, look, this is what's at stake if you're being seen by this influencer class as, you know, culpable in product obsolescence and, and this kind of like forced upgrade idea is something you're really going to have to deal with then. How about getting into the secondary market, you know, and creating something better for these people? Um, so you can see how successful I was on that front. Um, but I, I ended up um, instead going to uh, CES, you know, the um, consumer electronics show in Las Vegas um, that that winter and instead um, stood on stage and, and helped launch this brand. Um, and in the sidelines, I met um, a couple of folks who were starting a new company and they were looking for support. This company um, is now is now launched and quite successful. They're called Framework. And they did build a laptop that um, fulfilled all of this woman's objectives, a high-performance laptop, which is modular, which means you can um, you can keep the basic system in place but only upgrade parts of it um, if you really need to over time. And, and their whole idea is to disrupt the business model. I know you like the word disrupt, Toby. So they're going to disrupt the business model for technology consumption by saying this is the last laptop you're going to need to buy. And instead, they're creating a secondhand market for parts. Um, and they're doing that having also worked in Silicon Valley in some of the biggest companies because they're just, they are appalled at, at the lack of action on e-waste and, and product obsolescence. So there was a very concrete um, work experience that drove me into working on this in the tech industry. Um, but in terms of the personal motivation, I do think that... Um, that forced uh, 
pause that many of us had during COVID just it just created this sense of concern in my life generally about why am I so far from home um I've been very influenced by um my background in Australia and Indigenous thought and how do I actually um cope with this lack and sense of loss I feel when I'm away from land um so I definitely wanted to find a way to bring those things together and not sure I'm succeeding yet, but I'm on the way. That's a wonderful answer again. Thank you so much again for sharing so much of yourself so willingly and open-heartedly. It makes me think about Fairphone and the way in Mm -hmm. which Fairphone, by the way, the the only product I've ever bought from them doesn't work, but whatever. I like the Probably not alone. (laughs) I do like the idea, uh, of course, and they're trying to do something about the labour conditions and environmental conditions of people right along the commodity chain in producing goods. The trouble is, as I say, what I got was a bad, not a good when I bought it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me, their chief executive officer in her prior incarnation ran a non-government organisation dedicated to try to do something about the slavery that is incipient in chocolate. You know, most of the world's chocolate that is consumed is the product of of slavery. And she moved from that into Fairphone, not knowing anything about the technology, Mm -hmm. not being an engineer, but knowing something about forced labor and what might be done about it. But I didn't know about this new company or newish company that you mentioned. And that's exciting to know. There are, of course, also all kinds of organic movements to show people how they can learn how to fix their laptops or Right. Tablets, whatever it might be. It's very reminiscent of the moment when the radio became a sealed set in order Mm -hmm. to preclude two-way transmission and also make it easier for people to use, as opposed to operating a radio set being something that was requiring particular knowledge and, of course, involving gatekeeping. But that's a wonderful... I was going to say that um, it's even more probably relevant um, once once you uh, hear some of the rationale that executives give for why they won't make devices more repairable. So the right to repair is an area that I've been following quite a lot here in the US. Um, and while it's been extremely successful on some fronts, um, it was obviously very challenging to bring this to the attention of of colleagues um, when working in the PC business because our executive vice president at the time running the organisation was the guy who who helped create the design that sealed the laptop for the first time, you know, with the sorts of um, glues and um, connections that are making a thin and light laptop possible um, so that you can sort of point to these specific moments in the company that you're working in that are reactions to different kinds of disruption. In this case, it was the MacBook Air that had made the, the whole category of thin and light um, popular. And so the the PC ecosystem had to respond to that and the, one of the ways to do that is to start using glue. But it also... <laughs> it's what made Apple vulnerable because their way of doing it was also creating a lot of 
very specific screws that ordinary people didn't have the screwdrivers for. Um, so I think it's funny uh, what you see when you're on the other side of the conversations and you can start to see how it matters who is influenced to make certain decisions in companies that can have such profound effects that activists then need to take decades to undo. Um, but I have definitely wanted to support as much as I can um, the work on right to repair. And that's one of the things that we focused on in this series that I did for RMIT this past year. Oh, that's great. Yes. What are some of the issues to do with gender and race that you experienced or identified during your work in the technology sector? Yes, as a senior principal engineer, as my title was in the tech world, I was one of, I don't know, a handful of women with that title in a division of many, many thousands. And the extent to which uh, we could hold on to women <laughs> once they um, had a title of that kind was extremely difficult. It's very competitive in the employment market for women who have high technical grades because over the last decade there's been much more scrutiny on tech companies to ensure they have um, an equal proportion of women at different grade levels and different leadership levels. So there are sort of a lot of perverse outcomes that have arisen since those diversity metrics, as they're called, have become more and more public. Um, difficult also, I think, to reconcile the commitment to improving diversity and what's now called diversity, inclusion and belonging in the uh, HR, human resources terminology, um, and just the, the structural impediments. So when I first started working in tech, I couldn't get over this um, language that was being used that having come from a gender studies PhD and, and taught as a faculty member in a gender studies department, women were being described as um, the pipeline problem. <laughs> so not being able to get enough women into the system was a pipeline problem. And so the deficiencies of this metaphor was something I wrote about very early on. But then I started to get involved in some of the work inside the companies to see, you know, just what is possible in terms of changing the outcomes. And it was exciting at the time because um, there had been a very public commitment by our CEO to improve numbers on women's leadership, but also what are called underrepresented minorities or URMs. And so I was involved in a lot of the work across the company to count people, like literally count people and put them again in these spreadsheets with dashboard updates on an annual basis where executive pay started to get, you know, indexed on improvements up or down. So again, it created a lot of perverse outcomes because when everybody knows that that is part of the, the way that executives are being compensated, there does happen to be a lot of pushback from people who are not underrepresented minorities 
when you can see that certain jobs are being made available for people who do fit into those categories. And so um, when, when this is happening during an era where we have President Trump in power, um, it has been a very volatile time to see some of these strategies enacted when people are already feeling quite vulnerable um, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of social unrest happening outside company walls. So I have another piece I've been writing about um, the ongoing effects of Silicon Valley's founding fathers because they were all fathers um, and what their norms of workplace behaviour incentivize for the, the next generation of employees um, and the fact that women's voices and, and those of um, the assembly workers and, and offshore workers that were central to the wealth genera- generated in Silicon Valley, it seems to me th- those legacies of scholarship and activism that were apparent, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago now, are are really needed again today post uh, George Floyd and a lot of the activism that we saw both inside companies but also um, upsetting people on a daily basis when they are trying to do their jobs. So it's been a really <laughs> big roller coaster, Toby, <laughs> to put it in a nutshell, um, and I'm not sure how much is improving. Let me go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, to when you decided to be a recovering academic. Mm-hmm. When you left academia at some level, in terms of being institutionalised, as it were, what did your new life present itself as? What did you think you were going to be experiencing? What did you hope to do? And looking back on it, did that happen? Did different things happen? Now that you're a recovering recoverer. <laughs> I thought I was taking a job to work with academics, to be honest with you. I was. It was pitched to me as a role where I would be working in a research centre that had been funded by Intel Labs. And that's essentially what I did for the first 18 months. Um, I got to meet a lot of incredible academics and work as their partner in this um, Centre for Social Computing. And I got to travel around five different US campuses regularly and um, learn a whole lot of what people had been uh, researching and designing and advocating for in, in their academic work and share that with Intel. I thought it was going to be a research position, so I had just signed a book, book contract at that time and I thought I'd, I'd have an office to work on that book and continue along my merry road. But uh, I got thrown into a pretty uh, tumultuous situation and had to take on the management of that centre. And... Ever since then, uh, I have been losing my connection to having an office and a space to write any kind of um, long-form document and instead having to move dynamically with how the company's politics worked to maintain investment in the sorts of skills that I have. So I had to change very quickly in the end from being a researcher and having that as a sanctioned part of my role to then becoming 
uh, more applied researcher with a product-facing objective, and then finally to being a leadership and management uh, participant myself, uh, building teams and, and getting involved in some of the corporate strategy for the company. So it's a it's a lot of change over over the period I was employed, but it was a, a long it's the longest time I've spent working anywhere. So um, it gave me a lot of opportunity to, to grow different skills and test myself. That those are huge transformations. Did some of them happen without your quite realizing they were happening? Or could you see what was going on? I think that's one of the benefits of, of my background in sociology and um and ethnography is you know, you, you learn to pay attention to the structures around you. And I've I've often I've often been taught how to read an org chart as being one of the best ways to survive as a newcomer into an organisation. I felt the same way in academia. You know, I didn't have an academic background to begin with and so um, felt very lucky to be mentored by, by people who were prepared to share some of the rules of the game with me early on. Um, and I think part of what I'm still wrestling with is as an ethnographer and an, an observer of human behaviour and somewhat of an outsider um, trying to pass in different institutional settings. Um, th- these are survival skills, you know, learning who's in power, learning who's the influencer, figuring out who you need to talk to to get to get support for something. Um, this is also something I find really important to share with people in the humanities in particular and social sciences too is your, your skills <laughs> are so relevant in these sorts of company settings because business only gets done when you know how to persuade people. Um, and persuading people with evidence is is really the key way to get them to change their minds. So a lot of the skills that we learn in our field have um, a lot of further applications that I sometimes think people are encouraged to believe. Wow. Well, Melissa, I've got a couple more questions for you, if I may, and then I'd like to turn it to you to add or subtract anything. Mm -hmm. First question is to ask, where can people find some of this recent work that you've been producing? I know you haven't had much time to publish, but Ah. there are one or two items that are floating about, I think. Uh, Yeah, so uh, the best place to find me these days is on LinkedIn because I that's one way I have changed my uh, spots. I'm not I'm not so active on other social media, but um, I do a lot of my uh, my advertising for events that I'm organising there, and um, I do have one coming up next week. Actually, it's probably too late for your listeners, but all of these um, events we've been doing with the Centre for Automated Decision-Making Society have had a focus on ecological impacts. So the series that I curated for the past year is called Electronics Ecologies, and we have a YouTube channel that archives all of those talks, and they're a fabulous array from, you know, my friend at Intel who manages the uh, circular economy for chemical waste all the way through to um, a Bloomberg journalist, Adam Minter, who did incredible stuff on 
um, secondhand trade and, and electronics. Um, all of these are available on YouTube through the ADMS, uh, Automated Decision Making Society, uh, their channel. I also, um, yeah, I have a few things that are coming out and the piece I wrote on net zero dashboards, you know, the way that sustainability is being managed in tech companies, uh, that's just come out in a journal called Energy Research and Social Science with my colleague Yolandi Stringers. Um, but, yeah, I, I have a website. I'm, go- I'm going to have to try and improve some of that to um, refine my consulting offerings over the next year. So um, melgreg.com, stay tuned. <laughs> and I'm going to provide a, a link at the bottom of my brief note of what we've discussed, if I may, to both that mm-hmm. and to your LinkedIn page, if that makes sense. Yeah, sounds great. Um, so my, my last question is, what's next for you? What's next? Mm. I, I would like to know the answer to that question too, Toby. I'm still in a little bit of the honeymoon phase of um, post-employment with a capital J-O-B and I think this is an exercise for me in as Oprah would say, living my truth, right? Because I've spent most of my academic career talking about the future of work. Um, I spent a lot of my career in tech talking about the experience of freelancers and people working um, in portfolio careers. And that's really what I'm doing at the moment is I'm doing Mm -hmm. a number of different things at once. I'm planning uh, an executive retreat for... um, some folks in Australia who are, um, we hope, going to be taking some new initiatives in the circular economy, and I'm working with a a group called Boomerang Labs to do that. Um, And I'm also continuing this affiliation with RMIT as we wrap up the series. But I think I might have to go back to writing now that I do have somewhere to do it and I have plenty to say. So um, I think there may be a book proposal in my future which means I can get a few more of these angsty questions off my chest. <laughs> I can't help but ask whether there might be a memoir there. Yeah, you're not the first person to ask about this. So um, it's, yeah, not my preferred genre, to be honest, but um, I think in terms of spelling out that um, that story of, of how certainly for me to make sustainability action and, and, and climate action real um, having having a guide or having an example of how to make it relevant to your life and your family and and your legacy um, that has been really helpful to me. So if that's something I can do to help others, uh, I'd definitely consider it too. So, Prof. Melissa, are there things that we've discussed that you'd like to add to, or things we haven't mentioned that you'd like to speak about? Look, I think the main concern I've been having, this is a somewhat academic audience, I think, for your podcast. And just want to reiterate probably that original observation from earlier where I think there's a lot of pressure on academics at the moment to follow the lead of how tech companies are introducing new technologies and and to catch up with the pace of introducing those new technologies. Um But I really, one of the reasons I wanted to talk so much with you, Toby, is I think there are so many fundamental lessons that we have from our field 
in um, retaining some historical context for the introduction of uh, buzzwords and, and new techniques. But also what you have pioneered so well is this, the study of the materiality of technologies and particularly the hardware um, and, the, and the materiality of, of how they're built and, and who builds them um, and where they end up. Uh, that focus on on the hardware and the uh, the place where technology lands is something that I'm I'm trying to do in my work now, and I'd like other people to join me. Um, it, it feels as though a lot of people are trying to stay abreast of the software, um, but for me, having worked for ten years in a manufacturing company that has obviously a global footprint, um, you just ha- you just have to follow the hardware to see who else in the world is being implicated by your choices with technology. Well, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and your thoughts, and I'm sure people will appreciate it as much as I have. I always learn from reading the things you write, which is something I say to my guests, but only because it's true. But I've also learned a great deal from speaking to you today. Thanks, Toby.